Receive our gifts, Father, that the kingdom of your Son, the Lord Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the preaching and the living of the gospel, might be extended to the uttermost parts of the earth. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 5. And I want to read uh, all 11 of these verses. I try uh, each week to give you some, some pegs to kind of hang things on. Usually three points, sometimes four, sometimes two. Uh, but this morning, what I really want to encourage us uh, is to in is to is to see the movement and the flow of this passage, and so we're just going to work through the whole of the thing uh, together, and and that's why I want to read these eleven verses, and I I just want to remind you as we read them uh, that just as the the question from the Heidelberg Catechism this morning focused on assurance. That's what these chapters are about, chapters 5 and 6 and 7 and 8. Paul is presenting the gospel, if you will, and, and when he gets to chapter 5, he, he wants to reassure the folks who have embraced this gospel that they're safe, they're secure. That's what these four chapters are about, and, and they're deep and they're rich and they're, they're filled with all kinds of encouragement. And so with that in mind, let's, let's just read these 11 verses and then walk our way through them. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray together. Lord, please be with us as we come to this, your word, and do for us what in my heart of hearts I believe you intend to do in this passage, and that is give comfort and assurance and encouragement to your children. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There is a word in this passage that recurs, and it's a word that we ought to pay uh, close attention to. 
and it is the word rejoice. It is the word that acts as a kind of a thread, sort of tying this whole passage together. It's in verse 2, it's in verse 3, and then it's there again in verse 11. Rejoice. Paul says it three times. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, etc. And then verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And there's that second little phrase. There's the word rejoice that acts as a kind of a thread that ties the whole thing together. And then there's this phrase that appears two times that connects these little pieces of this passage. And it's the phrase more than that. You got one reason for rejoicing, but more than that, there's another reason for rejoicing. But more than that, there's yet a third reason for rejoicing. Reasons for rejoicing all over this passage. Now think about rejoicing. I mean, what the, what the word means, and it's translated this way sometimes uh, in, in various versions, the word means to exult or to boast. If you take you take those three different renderings of the original word, you just kind of paste them together. There is, a, there is a rejoicing, there is an exulting, there is a boasting about something. Okay? They're all sort of woven together. I mean, people, people who are happy about something, who are rejoicing in something, who are exulting because of something, probably want to talk about that thing. They probably want to boast about it, Right? Like grandchildren. I can't wait. I have two things I didn't have a year ago at this time. Boys in my family. I can't wait for grandchildren. We have three step-grandchildren. It's a new thing. It's an enjoyable thing. We rejoice in these two sons and their children and the grandchildren that we expect God will give. You know, we exult, we rejoice, and then we boast. We want to talk about these things. Played golf yesterday with a good friend. I would want you to know about my front nine yesterday. See, I have this number in my head. And it's a number that I want to shoot before I die. And at the end of the first nine, and through ten... And after my tee shot on number 11, I thought, maybe this is the day. And I'll be able to go to church tomorrow. And I'll rejoice. And I'll boast. And I'll exult. And then I made a double bogey. And then I made another double bogey. And I never should have thought about it. I should have just hit the stupid ball and do what they say you're supposed to do. Don't start boasting before you're in a position to boast. Everything unraveled. Everything fell apart. We rejoice about things. I mean, you you can go into people's homes, right? You can go into people's homes and you can see in people's homes the things that give them joy, the things that they exult in the things they want to talk about, the things that are important to them, whether pictures or a new flat-screen TV, books, all kinds of things, diplomas hanging on the wall, 
Think about the things that you exult in, you rejoice in, that you want to talk about, boast about. I think this is a thing that is really worth thinking about for us as Christians. What brings me joy? What causes me to exult? What is it that I want to talk about, boast in, want other people to know about? Now, look, I want to be careful here, okay? I really do believe that these four chapters are all about assurance. God speaking words of peace relentlessly, repeatedly to his people who have come to understand that they are sinners in need of a savior, who have come to understand that God has taken it upon himself to do for them, provide for them what it is that they need in Jesus. So I don't want in any way for these moments of reflection and for my encouragement that you and I, that we together reflect upon this. I I don't want for this to feel like a hammer. I don't want for this to feel like you're being beaten up in some way. But I want to ask us, what brings me joy? What do I exult in? What do I want to talk about? What do I want to boast about? Paul, and presumably for these folks who are listening to these 11 verses, it's the gospel. It's Jesus. It is, in fact, God himself. Just rehearse what's going on in this passage, these reasons for rejoicing. The first couple of verses, we have peace. We have peace with God. You have peace with God. If you've, if you've come to that place where you've said, I, I know who I am and I know what I need. And what I need, I can't find in myself or by anything I do. I've come to understand that God has done for me in Jesus what I need, most need. He has given me a savior. And I've received that Savior. I've embraced that Savior. I've accepted that Savior by faith. Paul says, now, if you are a Christian, you are justified. You are innocent before God. You are, in fact, positively righteous. That's what it means. Innocent and declared positively righteous. And there is now peace. You have peace with God. Martin Luther, in writing the first Bits of commentary on Paul's letter to the Galatians in the third verse makes a comment about Paul's words to the Galatians. Grace to you and peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. Luther says grace cleanses us of sin and peace stills the conscience. Peace. You have peace with God. The hostility is over. The warfare is at an end. It's what we looked at two weeks ago. And Paul says, not only do we have peace, but we have access into the presence of the Father. The Son takes us by the hand. The Father who can get into the presence, or the Son who can get into the presence of the Father leads us 
into his very presence, and we now stand in that presence. We are rooted, we are planted in a new environment. We are planted in a new environment. And that environment is the environment of grace. Rooted and planted in grace. And so now we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice because of what is coming. We look to the future. We can't wait for the day when we will stand in the presence of God, fully restored, free of all of the effects of sin, fully human for the first time in our lives, fully human, truly alive in the presence of God our Father to behold him, to delight in him, and to enjoy him and his kingdom forever and ever, ever. We rejoice because there is peace. We rejoice because we have access. We rejoice because we are planted. We We rejoice because we have hope. And Paul says, but there's a better reason for rejoicing. A better reason for rejoicing. More than that. We rejoice in our sufferings, whatever they are. The word in the text encompasses all kinds of sufferings, every form of suffering. It's not specific to the sufferings that people experience when they are persecuted because of the gospel, though it includes that. It's not specific to the sufferings that people experience because they grow old and their bodies break down and disease takes over and difficulties become so much a part of life that I suspect, I suspect we think, gee, I don't want to do this anymore. Sufferings, tragedy, difficulty. Johnny Erickson, recently diagnosed with breast cancer. If you know her story, you know she's a quadriplegic at 17 years of age. She's been in a wheelchair for 43 years. She lives with chronic pain, recently diagnosed with breast cancer. Come on, enough is enough, wouldn't you say? But see, Johnny Erickson, along with the Apostle Paul, says, no, I I rejoice in my sufferings and I rejoice in them because of what they are doing in me and to me. And I made copies of an article, an interview in Christianity Today. There are 15 copies of it back there on that table in which Johnny Erickson responds to questions about her suffering. And one of her answers is this. There are things that I am learning about God that I have not yet learned about God, but which I am learning because of my breast cancer. She said it, not me. Why do we rejoice in our sufferings? Here's the suggestion that I would offer to you. It's what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, last week. Suffering is surgery, and what suffering does is disconnect my heart from hopes that will disappoint in order to connect my heart to a hope that will never disappoint. Golf disappoints. 
Silly, I know. But from the ridiculous to the most profoundly sublime, dealing with end-of-life issues, paralysis in a wheelchair for 43 years, disappointments disconnect our hearts from hopes that cannot satisfy and cannot fulfill and reattach our hearts to the one hope, the one hope that Paul says will not disappoint us. So what is the proof? What is the proof that this is what is happening, that this is what is going on with disappointments, with suffering, with heartaches, with trials and difficulties and hardships? Where is the proof? Where is the proof that God is disconnecting my heart from hopes that won't, that will disappoint me, reconnecting my heart to a hope that will never disappoint me? It is that he has poured out his Holy Spirit, pressing his own very presence into the fabric of my soul. That's what he says in verse 5. The love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Where's the proof? Where's the proof that there is a good thing going on? Where is the reason for my rejoicing? It is the love of God poured into my heart in the person of the Holy Spirit. The subjective experience of the presence of God, the love of God, his indwelling in me as a believer. And then there's this second thing he gives me also in addition to the subjective experience, the subjective reality of the presence of Christ, the love of God poured into my heart, the subjective experience that fluctuates and goes up and down as crisis comes, as difficulties come, as heartaches come. My experience of that reality ebbs and flows. It waxes and wanes. Sometimes I know I'm loved. Sometimes I wonder if I am loved. And so what does he do? to reinforce the fact that he loves me. He gives me the cross. He gives me the objective expression of his resolute, inviolable and unalterable love for me. I'm not stuck simply with a subjective experience of something something that any Christian who's been a Christian for more than five minutes knows to be true. It ebbs, it flows, it rises, it falls. It's there, it isn't. What is always there is the reality of the cross. What is the evidence that this hope will not disappoint me? It is the cross. And here's what I want to point out to you in this passage in verses 6 through 10, and actually backing up again to verse 5 of this passage. Here's what I want to point out to you. What I want us to see is that the whole of the Godhead is involved in the cross work of Jesus. The whole of the Godhead, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. It is a Trinitarian work. It involves each of the persons. It involves all of the persons together. Number one, it is the Father who loves. 
It is the Father who loves. Look at verse 6. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One would scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But here's the point. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, verse 8 differentiates the dying of Christ from the loving of the Father. And it is the loving of the Father that leads to the dying of the Son. I've, I've had plenty of conversations with people through the years as a pastor. And sometimes in those conversations, there is this, you know, there's this hint of a suggestion that people have this view of the cross that the son dies in order to persuade the father to love those for whom the son has died. I mentioned this when we were looking at chapter 3. This is months ago. Somehow it kind of works its way into our thinking that the son snuck snuck out of heaven. He left home. He came to earth. He lived and he died and he rose again so that the father would be constrained by the son's death to love unlovely sinners. But it is the father who loves unlovely sinners. And it is that love that is the explanation for the coming of the son. God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The father loves, the son dies. The father loves, the son comes as a demonstration of that love. God shows, God demonstrates, God proves, God makes manifest the reality of his own love. He proves that he loves sinners. And the evidence of that is the son dying. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, while we were opposed to him, the Father sends the Son. And the Son is impaled upon a cross. And let's just remember that that cross was not a gilded cross, a cross of gold hanging on a chain around somebody's neck. It was the old rugged cross on which the Prince of Glory really and truly died, bearing the sins of his people. And what does that cross achieve? Verses 9 and 10. What is the result? What is the effect? You know, it's like Paul can't get away from this. See, if if you have a grandchild, you don't want to just show one person. You don't want to just talk about it one day. You want to talk to multiple people. You want to talk about it day after day after day. If you finally shoot that number, you don't want just to tell your congregation on Sunday morning. You want to call them all on Monday and say, hey, I I did it, I really did it. Paul can't get away from this idea of justification. He mentions it again in verse 9. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, by the cross, having been declared innocent, having been declared not guilty, having been declared positively righteous and accepted by the Father. You see, he can't get away from it. He remembers 
who he is, who he was. He remembers that he was one who opposed God, that he was one who in fact hated God. He remembers that he was one who sought to destroy the glorious gospel that has finally set him free. And he can't get his mind around the fact that he who would describe himself as the chief of sinners, he can't get his mind around the fact that he stands in the presence of a holy, righteous God, completely accepted, perfectly innocent, spotless, and clean. He can't get away from it. Justified and reconciled. There's a difference between justification and reconciliation. Justification is a technical legal term. It has to do with judicial acts. But see, you as a Christian possess so much more than simply a declaration of innocence. There is a reconciliation and a restoration that has taken place. There is a reunion that has been effected. Reconciliation is a relational term. So you see, it isn't just. It isn't just that I'm forgiven and I get to be a citizen in the kingdom of God. That would be great. (laughs) That would be great to be forgiven and to be given access to the kingdom. But the gospel means so much more. It means relationship. It means that this one from whom I was estranged is now my friend, my father, my shepherd, the lover of my soul, the one whom, in whom his soul delights. Some of you know the passage Zephaniah 3, 16 and 17 and 18. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty, mighty. He will delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will sing over you. That's the language that is used to describe the effects of the work of Jesus. Justified, not guilty, innocent, and back in relationship with the God who made me. The Father loves, the Son dies, and the Spirit resides. The Spirit resides. Think about this. It's stunning. Back up in verse 5. There is this objective thing. There is the cross and all of the benefits and all of the effects and all of the blessings of the cross But it isn't just an objective thing. It's a subjective and personal thing as well. The Holy Spirit is poured out, is pressed into the hearts of those who have believed. This fifth verse is a fulfillment of what Jesus promised in John's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 23. Jesus, in in his last discourse, his last conversation with his disciples, he is seeking to do for them what Paul is seeking to do for the readers of this letter. He said in the beginning of that discourse, at the end of chapter 13, the first part of chapter 14, he said he's leaving, he's going away. But he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let your hearts be troubled. 
You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, wouldn't I have told you? But I go to prepare a place for you so that when I come, you may be with me forever. That's John 14, verses 1 and 2 and 3. Jesus says to the disciples, look, I'm leaving, but I'm going, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. My father has this this immense place, and in that immense place, there are many, many rooms, and I'm going to prepare a place for you, a specific place for you, so that when I come again, I will receive you to myself and take you to be with me where I am. That word that's translated place shows up in Verse 23 of John 14, as Jesus seeks to comfort his disciples, he says to his disciples, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Make our home with him. Same word that you find in 14.3. Now I have to tell you, I learned something this last week and I love what I learned. I shared it with Zach and Glenn on Thursday night at our session meeting as we were praying before we were praying for all of you. This is the interesting thing. The word that is translated in the old King James mansions, the words that's translated in the ESV place, in its original meaning, describes a place of temporary lodging on the way to a final destination. Now think about it. What is Jesus saying? He's saying on the one hand, I'm going to the Father and I'm going to prepare a place for you there and you when you die will be in that place. But that place is only a temporary place until I come back and gather you to myself that you might be with me forever in the fullness of the new heaven and the new earth. It's a place of temporary lodging, the very presence of God, our souls in the presence of the Father, delighting in Him, enjoying Him, until He comes back to gather our bodies from the dust, reunite our bodies to our souls, and take us, perfected and glorified, into the new heaven and the new earth, which He will bring when He returns to liberate the creation from its bondage. And in the interim, on the other hand, God the Father and God the Son, by the agency of the Holy Spirit, will make me a dwelling place for himself. He will be with me until he comes again. Never to leave me alone. Never to forsake me. Always, by the very presence of the Holy Spirit, to abide with me, even in the midst of sufferings, even in the midst of heartaches, even in the midst of disappointments and all of these things that get piled up and which cause me to wonder, does he really love me? And the answer is yes. Look at the cross and look at the promise that he will make you his dwelling place until he returns to take you with him, that you might be with him forever. The father loves, the son dies, and the spirit 
resides. And Paul gets to the end of that in verse 10. And he looks back at all of these gifts and all of these blessings of assurance. He looks at forgiveness. He looks at peace. He looks at access and standing and hope and the gift of the Holy Spirit and justification and reconciliation and freedom from wrath and the promise of life. He looks at all of that and he says there's one more reason for rejoicing. It is God himself. More than all of this, we rejoice in God. Now look, you all have given gifts and you all have received gifts. You've given them, you've received them. Dear friends, what do you do when someone who loves you gives you a gift that blows you away. Don't you turn from the gift to the giver of the gift and marvel that you should be so loved. That's what Paul's doing here. The gifts are glorious. The gifts are marvelous. But the gifts separated from the giver mean nothing. The greatest gift is the gift of God himself. More than that, we rejoice in God himself, the one who lavishes us so exquisitely, so relentlessly, so wonderfully with all of these gifts. I got to tell you, I'm convicted by this. I am. I'm convicted. I want to shoot 69 more than I want to love God. Now, don't roll your eyes at me and think that I'm a freak. People who love certain football teams are grieving this morning because those football teams lost. I mean, don't you ever wonder these things? What is it that brings joy, deep exaltation to the point of boasting to my soul? That's the question, it seems to me, that emerges from this text. And for myself and for us, I want more than anything else for the beauty and glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, all of its blessings, all of its gifts, and God himself to be the supreme thing in my life and in our life together as a church. In what do I rejoice? In what do I exalt? About what do I want to boast? God help us that it would be him and the glories and beauties of the gospel and the hope that he gives. Let's pray together and let's prepare to come to the Lord's table. Singing these first two verses of Behold the Lamb. Let's pray. Oh, Father, have mercy upon me. Have mercy upon me. Forgive me that my heart gets so attached to so many things 
that over and over and over again disappoint me. Please, Father, by your grace and in mercy, attach my heart to the one hope that will never disappoint yourself. And please do it for my people. Please do it for this congregation. Free us from attachments that promise to give joy but only steal it from us. Attach our hearts again to yourself. And as we come to this table to celebrate your grace, feed our souls. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.